The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. And welcome to Fast Money and CNBC's continued coverage of the markets in turmoil. Good evening or good afternoon, everybody, and hope you're having a decent Friday. I am Brian Sullivan, TGIF. The markets today and this week reflecting and maybe uh, an economy and a health and population that is slowly starting to get a little bit better every single day. The Dow ending its day up 704 points. It is now up 10% in the month of April, but still down 15% on the year. The NASDAQ and big technology, once again, the big winner. It gained 1.4% today, 6% for the NASDAQ this week, and many of the most beaten up names, some of the ones exposed most to the consumer and a shutdown economy, rising the most on this Friday. Well, welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us. I am Brian Sullivan. We've got a great trader lineup for you today as well. Of course, the names you know and trust, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, and Brian Kelly, Jeff Mills of Bryn Mawr Trust will join us in moments. All right. There is certainly a lot to do, by the way, and chew on from a macro standpoint. But we're going to begin with a deep dive into the one of the world's most owned, if not the most owned stock in the world, (laughs) and that is Apple. Goldman Sachs on this Friday says it is time to sell Apple stock. They believe that iPhone demand will continue to fall as consumers dry up. And also, this is interesting, Guy Adami, that lack of travel, the inability to physically be with each other might cause delays because engineers and product designers simply can't get together in the same room to finalize whatever it is they need to do. Your take on the Goldman call on Apple. Yeah, and on top of that, you know, maybe supply chain issues, which which we haven't talked about, which all this sort of flies in the face of what Tim mentioned the other day, you know, some of the news out of Taiwan Semi. So clearly a mixed bag. What's my take on it? Well, first of all, it's amazing. You know, when people say anything about negative about Apple, it's like you might as well be insulting somebody's first child. It's incredible to me how passionate people get about this stock, uh, just generally speaking. In terms of the call, you know what? I sort of like it. I mean, the market's rallied considerably. You just said it leading in. I mean, we're only 15 percent now off the all-time high in the Dow in the S&P 500, which is remarkable. You know, Apple has rallied significantly off the lows. The level that they talked about, Goldman Sachs, with the sell rating, takes us back to the previous all-time high we made back in October of 2018. So given the run the markets had, given the potential headwinds, and the fact that I don't think people are going to be racing out to buy, you know, $500 phones, let alone $1,100 phones, leads me to believe that this is not a ridiculous call. With that said, quickly, I guarantee in the earnings on April 30th, there are other analysts that come out and upgrade this name. And that's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, you know, Tim, we highlighted the other day how iPhone sales in China were better than expected. But I guess what, what I should have highlighted a little bit better is that what Goldman notes, they were still down 53% year over year. 
Yeah. So, I, I, look, it's very interesting week on Apple, right? So the Tuesday news, again, uh, international iPhone shipments of which two and a half million look to be Apple imputed straight out of China, uh, a very important market for them. And today, um, Goldman says, hey, we're willing to throw a 17.7 multiple or an S&P multiple on Apple uh, and 13 spot, I think, one seven in terms of 2021 earnings. J.P. Morgan uh, throws a 20 times multiple and a, you know, and a, a roughly a 16 and a half dollar uh, per share number. And, and that tells you where, you know, you can see a divide. And, and that's that's interesting. I think for investors, that's really where you have to line up on Apple. Do you believe uh, in the multiple? Do you believe in the multiple expansion we had last year? One of the things Goldman brings up is they actually see that the service revenues come under some pressure and maybe stagnate and don't grow. And that was really the re-rating dynamic. I know that the iPhone shipments were better uh, last quarter. That was a surprise to the upside. But it's been about services. Interesting take by Goldman. It is, BK. And I think Guy made a good point. I mean, sort of how dare you downgrade Apple? <laughs> but listen, analysts, you know, everyone's struggling to work in this environment. They may be a little bit slower on the uptake than they are. Do you, do you expect to see more calls like this, whether it's on Apple or other of these big cap tech names that everybody's been buying for the last 10 years? Yeah, I think so. You know, what's kind of interesting about this, Sully, is I think it is a proxy for what's going on, right? We've had this disinflationary, deflationary shock. You've shut the economy down. And so if you look at Goldman's note, what they talked about was average selling prices, ASPs. Those are going to go down. Apple announced a lower priced phone. So if you start thinking about that economy wide, you say, OK, this is going to happen to every com company out there. They are going to have to lower their prices for the products that they sell. And so you look at Apple, they're the first to do it. They're also the first to close their stores. They're the first to kind of lower their the price on their phones. I think Goldman made a great call here. And I agree with Guy, like you're not allowed apparently to say anything bad about Apple. It's a company just like anybody else, and it is still subject to the economic winds. Yeah, and what you're going to hear, and I had to look something up in this call because Jeff Mills, they talked about what BK was talking about, average selling prices, ASPs going down. And I read this line. It said basically that the preference for less expensive devices could push Apple toward moving toward the inclusion of MM wave technology for most Devices next year. I didn't know what MM Wave was. I'm not going to lie. I looked it up. It's millimeter wave technology. The point is, is that this price battle, especially in, a, in an economy globally that is shaky to weak at best, could compress margins. Do you agree with the Goldman Sachs call? Yes or no? So, look, I'm going to take a little bit of a longer term point of view here. And I want to go back to something that we talked about on the show last week. And it was the Piper Sandler survey that talked about the, the brand and the power of the Apple brand. It surveyed 5,200 teenagers and 85 percent of them own iPhones. So this is still a very powerful brand that people want to own. So that's good for the long term. They've proven that they can diversify away from iPhone. And if you just look at the chart right now, I think it's steadily above the 200-day moving average, actually closed above the 50-day. So from the short-term setup, the chart looks okay. Specific to the Goldman note, they talked about average selling price, but they also talked about unit sales growth. And they're extrapolating their numbers based on the recessions after the tech bubble and then after the financial crisis. So the question is, do we think this recession is similar and you're going to see a similar pickup in sales after this recession is over? 
Um, does the nature of this recession make the snapback quicker? Does the stimulus that's being introduced make the snapback quicker? Frankly, we don't know, but we have to look for clues. I think it's interesting. If you look at international luxury sales as an example, um, in mainland China, Louis Vuitton, so over the last three weeks, sales there have increased 50%. Uh, compared to that same period a year ago. So you are seeing some pent-up demand and consumers coming back to market for some of these higher-priced goods after the worst of the virus is over. So is that a perfect analogy to what's going on with Apple? I don't know, but it could mean that once we get past the worst of things here, that consumers come back a little bit more quickly than we think. And I, I agree with that. Um, it, certainly in terms of the, the China data, we've seen it all week. They had better import-export numbers. We've heard from Taiwan Semi, et cetera. Um, but, but for me, the issue with Apple is where we came from with Apple. Um, I mean, we, we went into the crisis with Apple effectively, um, not only at all-time highs, but it moved 90% off of uh, uh, that June 2019 low, and the multiple had gotten to 21, 22 times forward. That's my biggest issue with Apple. Pricing perfection in this environment is really tough. And when you get back up near $300 a share, you're effectively pricing uh, perfection, even though I am of the view, Jeff, uh, that we actually do come back to, to a, a, a better demand cycle as we see Asia come online. I think we can impute that here. Yeah, and those are all good points, Guy Dami. But, but to Tim's point, I'll layer on to Tim's point. Look at where we've come from. People... A lot of our viewers have probably owned Apple for a long time. They have made a ton of money in the stock. And one does wonder, when you are facing such an uncertain future economically or whatever else, do you trim a little bit, take some of your profits? Because you, what is it? You never go broke by taking profit. Uh, apparently, my comment, Tim Seymour, left Guy speechless for <laughs> once. Tim, well, I mean, you, you get my it's point. Going believe. back I mean, to where you I, were. I know, it's impossible. We've made so much money in the name. If you've owned it for so long, why, why not trim a little bit, put that in the bank, and maybe look for better opportunities elsewhere? It's one of the stocks that investors universally, and we talk about this on the show, are you a trader? Are you an investor? And, and Apple, for me, I am an investor. Um, I, I will say that, uh, you know, on the positive side of the things that we haven't thrown into the argument today is the balance sheet, the, the ability through capital markets. And I know buybacks are a naughty word these days, but Apple's entitled to them considering the free cash flow that they generate. I think Apple is not something you run away from. Uh, I'm just saying, and I think we're talking about this in the context of this Goldman note. Sure. Makes sense. What's the multiple you put on the stock? Um, I think people are long-term investors in Apple. Uh, it's okay to take a breath here, um, but I don't think you want to be trading it too aggressively. There's nothing about the news today that Goldman illuminated that should have you jumping out a window on this stock. BK, I mean, fair, fair enough. You know, don't jump out the window, especially on Apple, because, but, but you, you, you know, we don't know where things are going to go, but we do know that I guess in some ways, Apple's not like other companies, right? I mean, Apple is almost maybe is a utility. You have basically two choices of phones. You have to have a phone. <laughs> I mean, so you're effectively you buying a, a utility phone. play in some ways, I guess. Right. But you don't have to have an $1,100 phone. I mean, you have to have a phone. You don't have to replace it. You don't have to go through, get the very new one. I mean, I think the reality here is none of us know, right? We don't know what it's going to look like on the other side. And I think to compare this environment to any other recession we've had, 
is is I don't think that's the right thing to do. You know, people are going to save more. I don't know if I mean Apple might be entitled to be doing a buyback, but it might not be very acceptable. Uh, acceptable. You might see companies being rewarded for saving money and not doing a buyback. These are all the things I don't know. So I look at Apple. I look at the run that we've had. Why not take some profit at this point in time? You know, these are the times. Not you don't get bullish at the top. You get bullish when things are horrible. We were on a show a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about, hey, we could have this big short covering rally. Those are the times to get bullish, not today. Okay, Goldman Sachs selling Apple. A big A block there. A is for Apple in our A block. Guys, thank you very much. All right, we've got a lot more to do. In fact, we got a lot more to do on CNBC tonight. Not only are we going two hours live, that's right, Jim is off today, so we got a two-hour fast money. We're going to roll right in to our special tonight, of course, continued coverage of markets and turmoil, 7 p.m. tonight, right here, of course, on CNBC. All right, on deck here on Fast Money, why you need to pay attention to two things with oil and what each of those things might be telling you right now. Plus, an interview that you do not want to miss, California Governor Gavin Newsom's efforts on the states trying to get its once golden economy back in business. Interview the California governor coming up live here on CNBC's Fast Money. We've got a lot more to do, and we're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Well, crude oil falling again today. In fact, another big drop down about 8% on the May futures contracts. They settled at $18.72. That is the lowest since 2002. I guess one upshot is that gasoline prices should continue to fall. But when we talk about any commodity, I want you to remember one thing, especially like in oil. It is important to look at multi-month contracts because of expected production cuts along with OPEC, as well as huge drops in drilling rigs. The June and July contracts for oil are trading at very different price points than the May contract, the front month, which is what we have been showing you. So May was at 1872, but June's at 25 bucks, and July is at nearly 30. Uh, BK, a little bit of, I guess, sort of, you know, looking at certain contracts type lesson there. And I'm not going to say 25 or 30 is good, but they're better than 19 bucks. What is that contango, higher prices in the future, telling you about oil and maybe the economy? Well, so it's interesting. I mean, because today, basically, not to go too far into it, but a lot of people were selling out of May and buying into June and July. So you had this kind of weird dichotomy there. But even still, you're still talking about oil in the $20 a barrel. And really, to me, it's less about the intricacies of trading oil and the contracts and all that. You know, I mean, I, I trade oil, but more as a, from the macro perspective. So getting into the intricacies, you know, I'm kind of a tourist in that area. But what I do think is interesting, something you've been highlighting for a while, Sully, is that you know this is a debt story as well. And now we have the Federal Reserve that is buying junk ETFs. So they can keep the price of that debt up but what they can't do is replace the cash flows. So if there's insolvencies, the price of junk debt might be up. But because oil's at $20 a barrel, 
you're going to see companies go out of business and those cash flows aren't going to come in. So, you know, what I'm more concerned about is what happens when there's an insolvency and the Federal Reserve owns that bond. What do we look at? The longer we stay at these prices, the worse it gets. Okay, f- fair enough. You know, Tim Seymour, uh, we look at oil and gas stocks. Some of them actually did okay today, even as oil fell. I think maybe they are looking out. I think rig counts, the number of new rigs are down like 300 over the yeah. past couple of yeah. months. There is some reason to be mildly semi-optimistic here, I, I guess. Well, if you're investing in, in, in energy stocks and in oil companies, and you talked about the, the futures contract configuration of, of you know, essentially uh, 20 to 30 percent higher out two to three uh, months in contracts, as an investor in equities, um, that should be very encouraging. Now, um, ultimately, Schlumberger reported numbers today. They were terrible numbers, but they gave some guidance in terms of cash flow and, and their ability also to, to not only pay a dividend um, that right now is somewhere around 13 percent. And I won't opine on that, but 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 I, I think investing in energy equities uh, in the current spot environment is 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 crazy, uh, crazy as in to assume the current environment is something you want to impute over the next two to three months. Look, Chinese demand. Let's talk about it again. Uh, the green shoots, this term we used back in March, April, late 2009, 2010. We are seeing Chinese oil demand, and this is the largest uh, delta, or in other words, incremental demand in the world is is somewhat back online or it's coming online. So I, I think you have to be really careful to assume that, you know, WTI prices right now are indicative of where the industry is going to be at three to six months. Also, Saudi Arabia, Russia, uh, their oil ministers on the tape today talking about their their willingness to get out there and actually uh, make more cuts if they need. You talked about those rig counts. Ultimately, in commodities, there is a supply response. Uh, and that is something that ultimately elevates prices because we can't exist in this environment for much longer. Yeah, I guess. But what's interesting, Jeff Mills, let's look at Schlumber's SLB. To Tim's point, the numbers were absolutely dismal, but the stock up almost 9%. Not every oil and gas company is going to go away. Any opportunities that you guys at Bryn Mawr Trust see in any form of energy anywhere? So, look, broadly, this is what I would say. We don't have any type of edge in forecasting the price of oil. I think that's going to be extremely difficult. The supply-demand dynamic is such that I think prices probably stay low. So what we've done and actually what we started to do at the end of last year was reduce exposure a little bit and really sell out of our EMP names. So names like Occidental, Apache, um, just getting rid of those and looking for exposure uh, in more of the integrated space. So I think about a name like ExxonMobil. It's got over an 8% dividend yield. Uh, it's trading at a PE multiple that's less than the overall industry. And, and you have a CEO and a company who's instituting some cost cuts. So it looks like they're serious about protecting the dividend. So in the energy space, we much prefer to be in names like that than names that are closer to the commodity and might be more volatile as commodity prices move up and down. All right, Jeff Mills. Jeff, good stuff there. Thank you very much. Look at an SLB up nearly 9% today. I'm going to say goodbye to all the traders for now, but we're going to bring a bunch of them back as well. Just a reminder, we're going live two hours tonight, so there will be a live Fast Money from 6 to 7 p.m. with Guy and Tim and others. Catch that as well. But right now, we've got an important interview to bring you from out west. California Governor Gavin Newsom just announced his new business task force to help restart that state's economy, the biggest in the United States, and by itself, one of the biggest in the world. Members of the group include some names that you certainly know. Disney CEO Bob Iger, Apple CEO Tim Cook, former Fed Chair Janet Yellen, former presidential candidate and hedge fund manager Tom Steyer. He will serve as co-chair 
of that task force. And we are pleased to be joined now by the governor of California, the Golden State, my home state, Gavin Newsom. Uh, governor Newsom, Gavin, it's good to chat with you again. Um, when you look at this Great economy, I know people are probably in your ear. We need to reopen. You're the biggest state economy in the United States. Tell our viewers where we stand right now and what the what the realistic timeline might be. Well, we're not looking at timelines. We're looking conditions on the ground. We're looking at data science. We're looking at the spread of this virus. Uh, we have a strategy. We laid it out in the beginning of the week of how we start thinking about this, how we start toggling back and forth, not the proverbial light switch, but really a dimmer uh, as we try to iterate and we focus on a phased approach uh, throughout a nation state. Remember, it's the largest state in the union. We've been growing at 3.8 percent GDP over the last five years. And literally up until last month, we were enjoying record low unemployment, record uh, reserves, record surpluses. Uh, and obviously now with this induced recession from COVID-19, uh, we have our work cut out for us. Yeah. And any projections, maybe not on health, but on on the economy in general, we've had 22 million people nationwide file for jobless benefits in the last three week, Governor, a number I'm sure that millions of those are coming, unfortunately, from California. Any projection of whether or not the worst economically may be behind your state? I don't know about that. Look, I, as I sit here quite literally uh, a couple hours ago, we got our new unemployment claim numbers, 3.1 million, 3.1 million just since hmm. March 12th. So you're talking about in a sector of just a few weeks, uh, a, a deluge of unemployment claims. I'm here at a restaurant in Sacramento, Mulvaney's. It's just a demonstrable example. By the way, I, I have a business background. I got into politics by the way of business. I opened 23 businesses, have about 1,000 employees in a blind trust right now. So this has been a cause of my life, a point of passion. And I'll tell you, with the stimulus, as important and powerful and potent as it is, uh, those PPP dollars aren't getting down yet to businesses like this. I am hopeful these guys uh, are able to do justice uh, to the smallest of small businesses, particularly in this restaurant sector in the next round. It's just fundamental and critical so that I can answer affirmatively that I think the worst, the peak, uh, is uh, upon us or behind us. Yeah, and I'm glad you're at Mulvaney's because kind of a legendary spot in Sacramento, family-owned, I mean, you know, we look across California or whatever state it might be, Governor, and we see all these small businesses, people that have broken their backs for generations trying to build a little nest egg and a business for themselves, now literally at risk of losing 20, 30, 50 years of family work over a one or two month period. The PPP, we've talked about it, pretty much full. Congress is arguing for it. What is your message to Congress and to the small business owners in your state that are just struggling to stay afloat after being punched in the face out of nowhere. I love the way you set that up. These are dreams uh, that are risked of being stuffed out. I mean, this is the spirit. We talk about California being a state of dreamers, of doers, of entrepreneurs, of innovators priding ourselves on being on the leading and cutting edge. It's people that put everything on the line and take the risks that folks like this do. This is the spirit and the pride, not just the economy. These are not numbers. It's not GDP. This is literally community. This is, as you say, families, generational families. And you're right, just in a few quick moments, just a few weeks, uh, all of that potentially at peril. And so, look, a state, even a nation state as large as ours, the fifth largest economy in the world, $3 trillion a year of output every year, we can't do enough. 
within the state to help subsidize those supports. We're doing as much or more than anybody, but the federal government in this next round of stimulus, it's just essential to put aside our differences and get these dollars down to the smallest of small businesses all across this country. You know, I think you would argue, you know, and so many would argue, not only in America, but around the world, Governor, the key to coming out of this, besides, of course, a vaccine that is widely available, is testing. And, I mean, I could see a day where, you know, we're going to a 49ers game at Levi Stadium and somebody puts a thermometer to your head and says, OK, you can go in or you can't. Or you can go to Mulvaney's because they've taken your temperature at the door or there's widespread testing and you can sort of prove, yeah, look, I've just tested and I'm sort of negative. You can kind of see that world based on where China is now. How close are we to mass testing. You got, what, 55 million citizens you've got to deal with? Yeah, look, we're nowhere near where we need to be on testing. Let's just be straight with folks. A few weeks ago, we were talking about reagents, RNA extraction kits, and not having enough capacity to do the diagnostics. Now the biggest challenge is swabs in the media to carry the swabs. The good news is we're getting more throughput, point-of-care testing, and we're seeing the adoption of a lot of innovation and entrepreneurial spirit in this place, including the serology test, the blood-based test. But the community surveillance that you speak of that ultimately will help us not only track the disease but begin to trace uh, the impact uh, on the broader community and be able to isolate and quarantine people, that will allow us to advance our economic recovery, allow us to do it in a safe and responsible way. Let's just be careful at this moment. We're so desperate to get out of our homes, to get back to work, and to go back to places like this uh, to reconnect with our family and friends. But let us not run the 90-yard dash. This country has come so far, and we're really starting to bend the curve all across this nation. Let us not dream of regretting that we pull the plug too early. Yeah, and I just, by the way, I think I threw you 15 million more citizens. I gave you Washington and Oregon thrown in there, but, but you get 40 million I'll is a lot. Em. Let's talk about 40 million. How, I didn't even want to correct you. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. It's been, it's been a long nine-day week once again here, Governor Newsom. But, you know, you're trying to deal with an ongoing crisis but I also would imagine there is planning for the future because there is a message of hope. There will be a future. We will come out of this. And I know we can't have timelines. You just said that. But can you give us a little window into what kind of planning might be starting or what you're talking about with regard to, hey, restaurants will have 50% capacity. They got to take half their seats out. Business ideas that you guys might be either thinking about or just kicking around. Yeah, you really got to begin with floor plans, the ability to practice not social distancing because you want people to once again to associate with each other in a much more community-based way, but you want physical distancing. In the absence of being able to physically distance in businesses large and small, retail and otherwise, then it's going to take longer for us to ultimately start to toggle and start opening things up. But you're right. We're in a world where you're going to be tested. Uh, you're going to have that thermometer uh, test before you walk in. You're going to have the ability to probably sit around a restaurant like this and there will be waiters potentially coming up with masks. When you walk in, you can take your mask off when you start eating. But when you walk out, you're likely to put that mask back on until there's dynamic treatments, until ultimately there's the herd immunity and the vaccines that we're all hopeful for. By the way, California with Gilead, not just researching and advancing the trials, but manufacturing here in California, Genentech, birthplace of biotech, life science and innovation. Uh, that 
is one of California's uh, great resources. And so we hope we are on the front of that curve as well. And as we come out in the treatment and the vaccine side, then the economy will start uh, to appear at the kind of scale where the physical distancing becomes less and less significant and ultimately we'll get to the point of some semblance of normalcy. Yeah, and then I'll wrap it up with this, obviously, because you've got in your state, obviously, Facebook and Google. And sort of the irony is, Governor, is that before all this came about, there were a lot of fights about privacy and sort of, you know, personal data that's been going on for years. Now we're talking about literally contact tracing and following people around with, you know, mobile and Internet enabled thermometers. Where do you think the and this probably is more of a congressional argument, but listen, they're probably coming to you too because they reside in your state. What are you hearing on the privacy concerns and how we balance this all out? If I was talking to you last year, the big debate in this state and by extension this country was the work California was doing to lead in the privacy space. Uh, We were referring to some of our data uh, collectors as data frackers in a pejorative term, meaning there was a lot of consternation. You guys have covered this ad nauseum. Uh, But now these guys have been incredible partners. But I'll tell you what, it's predicated those partnerships on maintaining our privacy. And so what I've done is we brought two Obama alumni, their chief data officer uh, and one of their CTOs uh, during the administration. And they're advising us in this space. It's part of a core value in California. But we're so pleased with the work Mark Zuckerberg has been doing to help support the open access of appropriate data uh, in an anonymized way, in a non individual or personalized way, including Apple and Google and others, as you noted, uh, that are really going to help us with the technology platforms to help us supplement or support the efforts of the individual tracers, an army that we're all starting to build and train to be able to ultimately move back into an economic point uh, where more of our businesses are opening up every hour, not just every day or every week. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion there, and you're offering us a little bit of hope there. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, Mulvaney's in Sacramento, and a shout-out to all the places like Gardena, Bread, Encinitas, Valley Junior High School. Gavin Newsom, thank you very much. Do appreciate it, sir. Best to you and everybody in your state. Thank very you very grateful. much. Thank you. All right, take care. All right, do not go anywhere tonight. We have got a very special Friday night for you. Jim is off, so no mad, but we're going to be doing another full hour of Fast Money from 6 to 7 p.m. tonight. As always, Options Action is ahead, 5.30 to 6, but then 6 to 7 p.m., at least here on the East Coast, 3 to 4 p.m. out where we just were talking about in California, will be Fast Money as well. A lot more to do. You're watching CNBC, the Dow, up 704 points today, and we're back right up. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? 
Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Hi, everybody. For those of you who are tuning in, as always, to see Mad Money with Jim Cramer. Well, Jim and the gang getting a well-deserved day off today on this Friday. But we are here to help you understand and maybe navigate through these confusing times and really unusual markets. So we've got another full hour of Fast Money Live for you happening right now. Welcome, everybody. Guy Dami and Tim Seymour are back with us. Mike Coe sticking around for the entire hour and also your special guest, is Crossmark Global Advisors, Victoria Fernandez, coming to us live from Houston. So maybe we'll be able to touch a little bit on oil and energy as well. But we begin with a look at the overall market and stocks and really the economy, because there is some, not a lot, but some cautious optimism starting to trickle out around both the markets because they ended their day and they ended their week higher as well. Perhaps some hope on the horizon about America getting healthy and getting working again. But Tim Seymour with 22 million filing for jobless benefits in just the last three weeks, wiping out a decade of job gains and no doubt some very hard economic times for millions of people still to come. Is there really any good reason, maybe it's the Fed, for markets to be rising like they have been? Well, I think it's a it's a liquidity squeeze. It's it's been uh, a, a skepticism trade um, that has really squeezed markets higher. It has been a combination of uh, a Federal Reserve uh, expanding its balance sheet to six point one trillion. Uh, it's been some fiscal policy that clearly is shown to be focused on small business. Uh, it's been all of this uh, well ahead of the recession, frankly. Uh, and it's been a, a dynamic where uh, I think the, the positioning of markets allowed markets uh, to push on higher. It doesn't change from where we are. But uh, obviously, we started all this on COVID-19. And as we've gotten more clarity on COVID-19, not only in terms of the, uh, the progression, uh, the peak, the apex, uh, the curve, but also as the rest of the world begins to open their markets. And we, we do have uh, a couple weeks of data points coming out of Asia, uh, most notably China. We had PMIs. Uh, we had import-export data this week that largely came in significantly better uh, in China than expected. We talked a lot about Apple earlier in the show, uh, but again, those smartphone shipment numbers. So what does it look like uh, for markets on the other side? That's what happened this week. That's what happened last week. Um, but to say that, you know, at 2850 to 2900 uh, on the S&P, you, you haven't seen a, an enormous run that is something to be wary about um, is to is to misjudge here. I, I, I don't see how equities have to get away from us. Uh, but I do think that uh, the confluence of events here has taken us. Victoria, let's talk about the macro markets before we start to get micro, because I, I ran the numbers before the show and 
When you look at the S&P 500, 112 members of the S&P 500 are higher year over year. So in the past 12 months, basically we'll call it one fifth of the market is still up. We're facing the greatest global pandemic in at least the last 50, if not 100 years. The consumer economy is completely shut down and yet a lot of stocks are still outperforming. Can you please help us, help me make sense of what's going on? Well, Brian, I'm not sure that that was the case if you look back to when we hit those lows on March 23rd. I mean, we have come back about 30 percent from that point in time. And you do have certain sectors, certain companies that are going to benefit from the situation that we're in now. Obviously, Procter & Gamble gave really good earnings numbers, and you saw that they had sales moving higher, that pantry stocking that's going on. You've got other companies, tech companies, that are going to benefit from what we're doing. So it's not surprising that you have a handful of companies that are driving the market higher. But across the board, we have come back quite a bit from those lows. I think the market said maybe 2,200 was too low, but 3,400 was too high. So it's trying to find somewhere in the middle, and that's a little bit higher than where we were a year ago. But a lot of this um, that we saw today was purely on the optimism for the economy reopening and on the Gilead news. And I think some of that might be given back next week. You, you think so? Okay, Guy Adami, I mean, listen, we've got Elliott Management out this week saying we could go 50% from our highs. Scott Miner's been out there saying this. We've got, we've got some optimism. I get it. I understand where that's coming from. But at the same time, there's been a huge pile into basically the same names, for, for lack of a better way to say it, I guess, in yeah. these markets. Is there more risk to the upside or to the downside? Well, Tim's pointed that out, that the pain trade is higher, and and he's been spot on with that. And today is a great illustration. You know, people ask all the time, you know, the difference between the real economy and the stock market. Well, if you want to if you want like a thesis or a paper on it, just look at what's happened over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Data that's probably the worst we've seen in a century overlaid with a stock market that to the earliest point is it's going up 30 percent from that March 23rd low. I mean, people have to be scratching their head. Because I know I am. To me, it comes down to this. You know, at current levels in the S&P, if you assume, if you assume we're going to get $130 worth of S&P 500 earnings, and i got to tell you something, that's a stretch. Right now, the S&P is trading at 22 times, which is very rich. Now, the counter is the Fed's buying everything, and there's so much liquidity in the system that none of that matters. If that's the case, we're going down the same rabbit hole we went down for the last decade. And it just sets us up, I think, in the long term for just more pain ahead. And that's Mike Co. I think Guy nailed it. Listen, you get people, I, I hear the criticisms and I get it. The stock market's going up while 22 million people are filing for jobless benefits. It makes no sense. But when you look at a Fed that has thrown five, six, seven, maybe $10 trillion with leverage from the Treasury at the problem and you you just think don't fight the fed is there any reason to 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 go against the fed and the the two-week trend here well i mean obviously you know strong monetary policies to try to bolster the market are going to have an impact you know the fiscal policies that we're seeing and may see will also have an impact but I think people ought to be asking themselves this question, which is, we, while we have these winners like Amazon, we have winners like Procter & Gamble, we have other stocks that have held up very well, like Home Depot. The question that you might ask yourself is, 
We obviously have a very bad economic situation. It's obviously hurting businesses very badly. We hear it all the time, and it's going to continue to. Those are not the only companies in the market. And how much higher can they go? So if the best-performing stocks have already given us what they're going to do, and the bad news is still going to continue to trickle in, then to me, the risk is necessarily on the downside as people begin to digest that. And we're just at the beginning of that now. We're coming into earnings season. And I think that this is probably both the most important earnings season and the least relevant earnings season because you're looking back rather than forward. The reason it's important is because everyone's going to be on every conference call saying, okay, what are you doing? What is going on? How does it look? How much risk is there? We don't still know exactly how much there is. And for some cases, you might have four to six weeks worth of complete runway, and it's not a big thing. When you start to extend that, if we extend it, then those businesses are going to face you know, additional risk, and, and then you have to really worry about yeah. what equities are going to do. I think that is extremely well said, Mike. Most important but least relevant. It's very nuanced. We're going to get back to all you guys, but let's continue on that path because we got to remember, folks, that every week that we get through each week, is one week closer to maybe coming out of the other side of this scary moment in history. But time doesn't stop for corporate America, and they are still churning out their quarterly numbers, and a flurry of big companies are set to report their numbers and maybe, perhaps, give us some guidance on what they see ahead. But I guess here's the big thing with earnings. The number of companies withdrawing guidance continues to grow, so that's got many asking, including Bob Pisani, should companies simply ditch guidance. Bob, it's a it's a very good, very relevant, very important question right now. It's been around a long time, but with all of these companies all of a sudden coming out, Brian, uh, declining to provide uh, earnings guidance. Look what we've got here in the last 24 hours. Uber, Abbott, ConocoPhillips, Jack in the Box, GoPro, Bed Bath & Beyond, Audi, Volkswagen over in Europe. The list is really long of these companies declining. So this has been around for a long while, but there's a renewed debate a lot of people coming out saying, let's just kill it all together. Let's kill earnings guidance in general. It's outdated. The argument against it is pretty simple here. They, the people who don't want it say it's too much focus on short term. It increases the volatility of stocks needlessly. It's linked to lower earnings growth in general. And a lot of investors don't want it. They want long-term guidance, meaning once a year. That's the argument. Now, remember, this has been around a long time. Remember two years ago, Brian, Jamie Dimon and Warren Buffett came on Squawk Box, and they argued the exact same thing. They basically said we should finally just dump the whole argument and move on and just provide uh, guidance on a yearly basis. I'll tell you why I'm not so enamored with this idea. Number one, only one in five companies actually provide earnings guidance. We emphasize those that do, so they, it looks like there's more than there really is. Number two, remember, companies still have to file their quarterly earnings reports. It doesn't eliminate that. You have to do that legally. And if Wall Street doesn't provide any, excuse me, if the companies don't provide a guidance, Wall Street's going to provide guidance. Their analysts are going to go out there and say, here's what we think is going on. And that means less commentary available to the general public. And Wall Street is going to step into that vacuum. Finally, Brian, here's a thought. How about, if you want to deal with short-termism, how about having CEOs stick around a little longer? The average CEO only lasts five years these days. And how do they get paid? Well, their compensation is largely based on whether they can get the stock price up. There's a short-termism if you want to deal with it. I'd rather see that addressed than telling companies they shouldn't be providing any kind of earnings guidance. Brian? Yeah, well said. Bob Pisani fired up on a Friday. Bob, we appreciate it. Have a great weekend to you and yours, okay. and we'll see you next week. You on the too. other side, Victoria Fernandez, what do you think? I mean, do you want to hear 
companies, the CEOs of the companies that you own for your clients? Do you want to hear them give some kind of guidance and then get it wrong or simply say, we have no idea we're withdrawing guidance? What's better for you? I don't think investors want to see companies just throw in the towel, throw their hands up and say, we don't know what's going to happen. They need some type of guidance. Now, maybe you don't give specific numbers. Maybe you give a broader range than what you have before, or at least give me some kind of a scenario. Give me a worst case scenario or a best case scenario or some type of information that lets me know what's coming. I understand it makes people focus on the short term. The guidance could be a little bit longer looking if we want that to happen, extrapolate it out over a longer period of time. But I think companies need to provide something. Otherwise, it's going to be left up to the investors and whatever they can create in their own minds as to what they think is going to happen. I think that would cause more volatility in the markets. Yeah, maybe I can see that, Victoria. But Tim Seymour, I mean, if they if they give you a little but get it spectacularly wrong, that's a risk, too. Right. Yeah, and I think they're I think they're concerned about that. First of all, everybody gets a mulligan on this quarter, um, and 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 I think it would be uh, potentially, uh, you know, it would not necessarily help investors uh, to get some of the insights that that CEOs are seeing right now in the short term because they have no idea. Um, so uh, I, I do think if you know overall guidance as a function on a quarterly basis, I believe in as much transparency as possible. Um, I believe in Reg FD. I believe in the things that have also. Uh, some of the rigging of markets out of it. I, I think you know, CEOs and, and CFOs, when they're delivering uh, corporate numbers, they can decide what metrics they want us to, 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 to listen to, but I think they need to give us something. And, and, and think of Apple, right? Uh, Apple, who I think we would hold a very, very high bar uh, to as it relates to corporate governance, um, also kind of, you know, what was it a year ago? They, they gave us some sense that they didn't want to give iPhone shipment numbers, um, and the market was a little disappointed at that. And Apple, which gets a, a corporate governance premium um, suffered at that time, whether they should have or not. So again, the market is a discounting factor and, and, and information or lack thereof, corporate governance is a scoring system. And I think it will feed into how companies are valued. If companies don't want to be transparent, I think they will trade at a discount. Uh, and I think that's something else to think about. I'm still thinking about what Mike Coe said. So, Mike, I'm just going to go back and ask you, what did you mean by most important but least relevant? I thought I sort of understood it. Now I'm thinking more about it. It's been a long week. I'm thinking maybe I didn't fully. Why is it not relevant? Well, obviously, one of the things about earnings reports is they're telling you what has happened and what we're going to be dealing with is, you know, what's behind us now. And I think what most people are really interested in is what's going to be happening going forward. And I have a feeling that a lot of the questions that are going to happen on conference calls are really going to be trying to dissect what happened at the tail end of the quarter ending at the end of March, obviously, because that's when we began to see the impact of that. That's going to be the best tell to the degree that we can get any transparency on that transition from an open economy to a closed one. That's going to be the best lens looking forward as to what's going to happen. So you're going to be looking at a number that has nothing to do with the quarter you're in, but there's a little piece of it that might give you a clue. And this actually relates to what Bob and everybody else is talking about here. Obviously, investors want as much transparency as they can have, as often as they can have it. And, of course, we recognize the fact that management doesn't always know with a great deal of precision, and they're not obligated to tell us in any case. But the fact of the matter is that if you invested in any business, in anything, you would want to get financial information provided to you as much as you could get as soon as you could get it. So 
to the degree that they can offer guidance, even if it's wide, that's really, really helpful. Yeah, good stuff there. And I learned something as well from Bob Pisani. I did not know that only about 20% of companies provide any kind of guidance as well. All right. Well, speaking of earnings and guidance, with the big banks wrapping up a big week, the group reporting all their numbers for the most part, let's go to Wilfred Frost with the three big takeaways from the bank earnings that I guess we can gauge so far. Wilfred. Hey, Brian. Uh, good evening to you. So, number one, the biggest focus for the week has been the level of reserves the banks have taken against potential future loan losses. Here is Goldman's analysis uh, of the amount uh, of allowances banks have taken just this quarter compared to their entire loan book. Goldman Sachs notes the average of the big seven banks they cover is 2%, and the same measure peaked at 3.5% in the last recession in 2010. The second big takeaway, uh, while there were different tones on the calls as to whether this would mark the peak of those provisions, which Bank of America and Goldman Sachs implied, or whether they could increase again next quarter, which J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo implied, all the CEOs and CFOs seemed to agree that the economy had a huge uphill battle on its hands and would, unlikely, uh, would be unlikely excuse me, to open significantly anytime soon. We all love to... We all love to wish and to hope. Um, I, you know, I wish, I hope for a B. Do I expect a B? No, I don't. I mean, you can't have this kind of dislocation and expect people to bounce uh, immediately. So your best case is some sort of U recovery. And I think, you know, if, if I were a betting man, it's somewhere between a U and, I guess, an L. Um, I think, you know, it's through the end of next year, we're going to be working through this global recession. So we, a rational plan to get back to work is a good thing to do. Uh, and, you know, hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later, but it won't be May. You know, talking about June, July, August, uh, something like that. And the third point uh, to note is that interest rates and their impact on net interest income expectations have also been key. In fact, the biggest daily declines in bank share prices this week came on Wednesday and Thursday, which were the two days that Treasury yields fell the most. Uh, if you look at week-to-date performance, the most interest rate-sensitive names have declined the most. Wells Fargo, the regionals, for example, declining much more than the investment banks, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Regardless, it's not been a good week for the banks, but concerns over margin of profit you can make on interest rate-related products is clearly less severe a problem to have than fear your loan book is going to blow up. And that's really the key question now for banks' investors. Do banks face an earnings problem? bad, but not the end of the world if they do? Or do they face threats to their future with a balance sheet problem? The KBW Banks Index down 40% year to date suggests the market is still trying to work out between those two possible uh, eventualities, Brian. Uh, Wilfred Frost, a big week there for you as well and a big week for the big banks. Wilfred, thank you very much. Let's take a closer look at kind of what Wilfred was talking about. The big price action, specifically in J.P. Morgan Chase, you had lots of big down days. And then you had a huge update today. Guy Adami, I, I can't remember seeing this kind of volatility in a name like J.P. Morgan Chase, but they, they seem to be telling different stories every day. What story do you buy? I think a lot of people are struggling to try to figure out what banks are going to look like in six months. The story I buy is the story that we saw today where people, I think, are trying to get their arms around it. And again, I am not some raging bull here in the market. You know, I, I do think there's another turn to the downside. But with that said, you know, J.P. Morgan came out and told us the tangible book for the company was basically $61. Um, 
which is much better than I thought it was going to be. And at its peak, when J.P. Morgan was trading about 141 not that long ago, that stock was trading close to 2.3 times tangible book. Now, maybe we won't get back to those levels, but I think it's reasonable to think we could get closer to two, and you just do the math. I mean, you, you should be looking at, to me, at 115 to $120 stock. So I think people are trying to struggle with what the banks look like. But if you think J.P. Morgan is best in breed, and if you think they deserve that premium valuation, then you got to be looking at a stock, in my opinion, can rally 15% from here. Yeah, four, three, five, four percent down, nine percent up. Crazy week for J.P. Morgan Chase. Guy Dami, thank you very much. All right, on deck. Can Tesla thrive even in a shaky economy where $2 or under $2 gallon gasoline is widespread? We'll talk more about Tesla and its big week. Plus, is there any reason to invest in any casino company right now? Well, some are indeed making the case, and we're going to hear that case coming up on a special live bonus hour of Fast Money on a Friday. And we're back right after this. All right, welcome back. And just a reminder, the White House is holding its daily briefing on the coronavirus. Any key headlines there about reopening the economy, economic aid, the small business program, the Payroll Protection Act, of course, we will bring it to you or bring you live into that press conference. For now, let's do what we do here on CNBC and talk about the economy. But let's focus in on one company, and that is Tesla, because Tesla, through it all, continues to make money for its investors, global pandemic or not. In fact, shares of Tesla, look at this, up more than 30% this week, up 80% this year, and have now jumped 177% in the past 12 months. Tim, at least to me, it's starting to feel like the Amazon.com of old for cars and batteries. And what I mean by that is none of the criticisms, none of the fundamentals, nothing seems to matter to believers in Tesla. Look, I, I've said for a long time, and, and I can tee up the Tesla bots who will come after me on Twitter, um, that, that I don't think Tesla's share price is any reflection of fundamentals in the company. Uh, and I think it, it you know, without getting into, uh, to me, where I, I, I think it should be valued on valuation, yes, it's very expensive. Yes, um, you know, we, these delivery numbers that suddenly mattered uh, a month ago or six weeks ago, uh, didn't matter for a long time. Talk about transparency or lack thereof or guidance. I mean, it's a company that guides all over the place and is never right. Um, it's a company that has burned cash its entire career until recently. And we're in an environment where I think, you know, the Model 3, which was supposed to be the, the, the car for the masses, is, is not really affordable, at least at the price that they make it at. So um, meanwhile, the cash cow or the most profitable uh, parts of the Tesla line, we've actually seen dramatic uh, fall in, in, in sales. So, uh, you know, look, the Shanghai uh, story has been driving, I think, the last three to four months in the name, as has Fed liquidity. Um, and obviously, look, they're two quarters into showing some decent profitability. But, but it doesn't matter what the valuation is because uh, people will line up all over the place. I am obviously not one that lines up on the bull side. Okay, yeah, let's talk. Victoria Fernandez, listen, there's probably another side to Tesla that's not just Tesla. It's ESG, environmental social governance. Our viewers have probably heard that term or know a lot about it. Basically, it's a way to invest that is for environmental reasons, you know, climate change, whatever it might be. And I'm sure Tesla 
is getting caught up is a big part of that story for any ESG investor. And by the way, don't laugh off ESG, correct? I'm sure you have clients asking you about it. It's generated tens, if not hundreds of billions of investing dollars in the last couple of years. No, Brian, you're absolutely right. I mean, before COVID-19 really dominated the headlines here and around the world, ESG was something that was becoming more and more popular with investors. It was something that more people were looking at in regards to the companies that they were choosing for their portfolios. Tesla is a perfect example of that. Yes, a lot of valuation is driven by the passion that the investors have for the product, but also because of the ESG component. It's going to drive investors to certain companies that maybe otherwise they wouldn't invest in. So you would have non-Tesla owners or people that aren't completely on board with Tesla being valued as high as it is, but they like that ESG component and will add it to their portfolio. I think that's another reason why normally when you see oil at low prices like this, that wouldn't be a boost for Tesla. It's usually the higher oil prices that drive people to it. But ESG has been affecting the oil companies before COVID-19 as well. I think that was part of the reason you saw some of the oil names actually start to decline prior to the mm-hmm. demand concern that we have now. So Tesla can benefit from ESG, and I think we'll see that more once we come out um, of the COVID-19 issues. Yeah, Guy, I feel like it's a big lesson here. I mean, you have smart people, Jim Chanos, others, they come out, they make all these really smart cases against Tesla or other stocks. It doesn't just have to be Tesla. And if you get caught in a wave of a change of investing, ESG kind of came out of nowhere. It's this huge thing, as we've talked about. It sounds like maybe you just better get out of the way. You get run over. I mean, that's basically what happens. You know, just to sort of dovetail some of these points, you know, a month and a half, two months ago, if you'd said to me, guess what, guy? Crude oil is going to be below $20. Uh, There's going to be 22 million people falling for unemployment. Uh, the economies are basically going to be at a standstill. Where's Tesla, the stock? I would have said 250, easy, if not lower than that. And here we are to, the, to your earlier points with a meteoric rise in the stock. I mean, people, again, to my earlier point tonight, are left scratching their head. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And one thing that I've learned, you know, I, I had a decent run in terms of talking about this stock years ago, but for the last you know, a year and a half or so, it's just completely off sides. And when you find yourself off sides, sometimes the best thing to do is just keep your mouth shut. And that's what I'll choose to do in terms of Tesla until I try to get a handle on it that I have that I haven't been able to in quite some time. Yeah, don't don't be too hard on yourself, guys, but you and a lot of other people as well. But the stock has just powered over the last couple of weeks and months and quarters. All right. Coming up, Has the market sell-off? Remember, we've had a good two weeks, but let's be clear, we're still down 15% on the year from the Dow. Has that created maybe the perfect storm for some activist investors to go after some companies? We're going to debate it with some key names to watch in a cool new segment for CNBC and CNBC.com. Plus, what company insiders are placing the biggest bets on their own stock? Well, our exclusive list ahead includes... One name that is very well known to us in the NBC family who's been buying a lot of one very well-known stock. We're back with that right after this. All right, welcome back. Well, shares of Gilead Science is perhaps the big stock and really the big humanitarian story today 
after reports about a possible coronavirus drug trial showing some very favorable results hit the market last night and the stock spiked. But one thing that is important to remember when we talk about all of this is that it can be a little bit confusing because we're often talking about three different things at the same time. We're talking about companies working on testing. We're talking about companies working on treatment. And we're talking about companies who are trying to work on a vaccine. Meg Terrell joining us now with more on this story. And Meg, it is it is confusing, but we got to remember there are multi prongs to this coronavirus story. There sure are, Brian, and these three areas are moving at different paces. So let's start with testing because that space is evolving quickly. We got news today from Roche uh, that they plan to introduce an antibody test that they aim to bring into the European market in early May. Uh, And they're also working with the FDA on getting authorization for use in the United States. Now, the antibody test, of course, is the blood test to determine who has been infected and potentially who might have immunity. Of, Of course, scientists are still trying to figure out whether prior infection does give you immunity. Also, Brian, we've been learning that as we've been talking about how there are just not enough tests, there's a weird thing happening. There is excess capacity in the commercial testing labs. Companies like LabCorp, Quest Diagnostics, I spoke with the Mayo Clinic labs today. They have capacity to do 7,500 tests a day. They say they're running at 60% capacity right now. Um, So that's pretty weird. And it just seems like there's a clunkiness in the system and tests are not being run uh, where there is capacity. Now let's talk about the treatment landscape. You mentioned Gilead, of course, that big story today. Uh, We are expecting data uh, on Gilead's drug, the clinical trial readout, late April. That's going to be the first data we're going to see from Gilead. We're also expecting data within the next few weeks on Regeneron's Kevzara. That's that rheumatoid arthritis drug that's being tested on the very severe patients with COVID-19. And there's a lot of hope that we'll see that being very helpful. So those are huge data points to watch over the next couple weeks. And finally, in the vaccine space, that is the longest term horizon that we're looking at, but also the one that people are pinging a lot of hopes on. Um, Looking at Moderna and Sanofi. Moderna's up today because they got a $500 million almost grant from uh, BARDA, HHS, to support their vaccine development. Uh, Sanofi was on Squawk Box this morning, the CEO, saying that through their partnership with GSK, if all goes well in that vaccine development, they could potentially produce 600 million doses of their vaccine next year, Brian. So we're talking about huge capacity coming from two of the world's largest vaccine makers. So all of those things moving at different paces, but a ton of work underway, Brian. Okay, help us make sense of something, Meg. And by the way, I think I saw you on CNBC early this morning and now tonight. I know you got a little one at home as well. I don't know how you're doing it, but but thank goodness you're there because you're making sense for all of us and, and helping us understand this stuff. But I guess my question is, is with excess testing capacity in the lab, why are we having so much trouble getting the tests? Is it literally because, you know, it's the weakest link? We don't have the plastic to make the cotton swabs that they've got to stick up people's noses. Where's the where's the broken link in the testing chain? That is a problem. The supply chain is a huge problem. Just getting those swabs, even getting the simple things like pipettes, um, getting the reagents to run the tests. That's an issue. But the big commercial labs are telling me they're figuring out their supply chains. They've got that stuff right now. What it seems like is just a lack of communication and coordination around figuring out who's got the capacity to make sure the tests are being uh, sent to those places. Um, More testing platforms have come online in the last couple weeks, so uh, people might be ordering those tests or performing those. 
Um, and so there's just kind of a clunkiness in the system where we have some capacity that can still be used, but it's not being coordinated. All right, Meg Terrell. Meg, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much, uh, Meg. Appreciate that. All right, we've got some breaking news right now coming out of the White House coronavirus press briefing. Understand it has to do with farm aid for that. Let's get more now with Kayla Tausche. Kayla, what do you got? Brian, the USDA just announcing a new $19 billion aid program specifically for farmers. The Secretary of Agriculture says that it will be broken up into two parts. One is a $16 billion direct payment for farmers. The second part is a $3 billion purchase program where the government will step in as a customer and buy milk and fresh produce that would otherwise spoil or go unused and deliver that to food banks and others in need. This, of course, follows two years, Brian, where the USDA delivered tens of billions of dollars in aid to farmers because of uh, some of the uh, hurt that they were feeling because of the China trade war. So certainly President Trump is delivering uh, more aid to a sector that has not only been feeling quite a bit of pain these last several years, but is also critical to his reelection later this year. Brian. Well, breaking news there on farm aid and ranchers as well. 16 billion. Kayla Tausche, thank you very much. All right, coming up, getting active. Why the recent market volatility could present the perfect opportunity for so-called activist investors. Generally, hedge funds. Ken Squires with us to break that down as well. We are live in a special bonus hour of Fast Money, and we're back with it right after this short break. Stick around. Live bonus hour, Jimmy the Gang, a well-deserved day off. Right, all the market turmoil over the past few months just may have created the perfect opportunity for hedge funds and those who want to buy a bunch of stock and shake up the story. Some people call them activist investors. That's according to Ken Squire. He is the founder and portfolio manager of the 13D Activist Fund. He's also a brand new CNBC contributor, and his column for CNBC.com will be published tomorrow. But he is here now with a preview of it. Ken, welcome, by the way, and welcome to the CNBC family as a contributor. Good to have you on. Um, first off, before we get into sort of what we're doing, I- I've never liked the term activist investor only because I feel like, it. you know, they used to be called corporate raiders in, in some ways. To you, what defines a so-called activist? Well, first, thanks for having me, Brian. It's great to be part of the CNBC family. Um, I, I agree with you. Um, I like to use the fuller term shareholder activist. Uh, activists, uh, shareholder activists are stockholders that are taking positions, long positions in companies. Um, they're aligned with the other shareholders. They, they, uh, they implement their activist agenda, and they're paying for the cost in many, in many instances to improve the company, and all the shareholders should benefit from it. Okay, fantastic. Good stuff there. So talk about why market volatility might increase this kind of activity, Ken, because normally you think, oh, my gosh, you know, sort of run for cover. You're under your desk if you're a hedge fund because you're worried about the market volatility. You say in many cases it's kind of the opposite. Well, yeah, for activism has done very well, not necessarily during the, the, the sell-off, but in the year, two years after a sell-off, activism tends to flourish for several reasons. First of all, activists are value investors, and they're value investors who create their own catalyst for closing valuation gaps. When the markets are down like this and the, the, the gap between price and value becomes so large, there's just so many more opportunities for them to choose from. Secondly, 
it's much easier for them to get their agendas implemented. In, in downturns and down markets, it's harder for bad management to hide, and it's a lot easier to get support from other shareholders who are also losing money on their portfolios. So, like, for instance, in 2009 was a, was a banner year for activism um, after, after the downturn of 2008. Hey, Ken, it's, it's Tim. Again, thank you for joining us. The question is, um, are, are, you know, when an activist takes a... a stake in a massive company like Apple, um, can they really implement some change? And I, I give David Einhorn some credit long ago when he pushed Apple to, to really give more of essentially their free cash flow back to investors and forced Apple to become very active in capital markets. But talk about that. Talk about your approach and the size of a company that you think uh, it's most effective to be an activist. Yeah, yeah thanks, Tim. That's a, that's a great point. Um, I look at I look at uh, activism in mega cap companies as trying to turn around an ocean liner, whereas in small and mid cap you're turning around a, a you know a Boston whaler. Um, it's very difficult to to, <laughs> to really make a lot of big changes in a company like Apple. And you know when you talk about Apple, I'll, I'll look at what Carl Icahn did, where he had a, an agenda which was purely financial to have them buy back shares when their when their uh, stock was trading at roughly half of what it's trading now. And uh, which ended up being good for shareholders and, and, and was good activism. But generally, the, the best activism happens in smaller and, and mid-cap companies um, that, are, that, are, that are a little bit less liquid and might have, you know, uh, more of an entrenched boards or, 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 or operational issues. All right, Ken Squire, new CNBC contributor to the 13D Activist Fund. Ken, it's a pleasure to have you on in the CNBC family. Best to you and your real family uh, as we navigate through these turbulent times, we'll see a lot more of you, Ken. Thank you very much. And a reminder that Ken's Activist Spotlight column will be published, the first one, tomorrow on CNBC.com. A little Saturday reading outside of all the, the news that you know that we're talking about. All right, coming up, casinos hit among the hardest of any type of company by the coronavirus crisis. Heck, that's what happens when you're mandated to close down. But we're going to talk about the possible path forward for that group as well. Plus... The president's plans to try to reopen the economy, sending some stocks popping, others dropping. And our group will tell you what names that they are specifically looking at as well. Of course, CNBC will continue our coverage live of the markets. Moves all at the top of the hour. Be sure to catch our special report, Markets in Turmoil, right after this live hour, 7 o'clock Eastern time. We're back right after this short commercial break. Stick around. All right, welcome back to a special live bonus hour of Fast Money. We've got an update for you on the casino stocks. Let's get right now over to Contessa Brewer for the details on this hard-hit sector. Contessa. So, Brian, Las Vegas Sands cut its dividend today, which is a huge deal considering that its founder, CEO, and chairman exclaims in every earnings call that I've ever listened to, yay, dividends. The casinos are hurting in a big way. Over the last three months, shares of casino stocks have plummeted. Wynn off 50%, MGM off 60%, Eldorado off almost 70% over three months as it prepares to close on a merger deal with Caesars. And inside Caesars Palace on the Strip, it is still and silent. The Las Vegas mayor calls this Nevada shutdown total insanity, her words. The governor says, look, the state is not past a severe health risk. And yet already, casinos nationwide are beginning to game out what reopening would look like. 
Well, because properties likely will have to ensure social distancing for some time, every player becomes vitally important. Deutsche Bank gaming analyst Carlos Santorelli suggests that casinos may implement crowd control based on customer loyalty and theoretical spend. They may hike table minimums nationwide, $25, maybe $50, depending on the locations. And the least profitable slot machines are those that they have to pay a fee on because they're leased would be turned off. And then those casino amenities that a lot of us enjoy, spas, nightclubs, uh, the shows, likely those are going to be sparse to non-existent in the near future. Uh, also, location, location, location. Where the casinos earn their gaming revenues matters here. Casinos in Macau already open, though visitation is still only about a tenth of what we saw from this time last year because the government still restricts tourist visas. The ramp is benefiting Win Las Vegas, Sands, and MGM there, even though it's slow. In the U.S., regional properties without a high caseload of COVID-19 are likely to see a quicker return to business. That includes Greater Nevada and the Las Vegas locals market. So that's uh, uh, Red Rock Resorts, Penn, El Dorado, Boyd. And finally, the Las Vegas Strip may be the slowest of all to return because it relies so heavily, Brian, on tourists arriving by air travel. You can look for an impact there on Caesars and MGM, which both get nearly half of their overall revenue from strip properties, whereas Wynn, for instance, gets a quarter. Brian. All right, good. So I wanted to ask you about online gaming, but we'll save that for another day on another show. Contessa Brewer, oh, it's have so, a good weekend. Thank we you very much. We got a weekend. We have to, th- we have to think about it. Yeah. Next time. We'll do it next week. <laughs> Contessa, you have my word. Guy Adami. Wynn Resorts, any of these names to you look attractive? Wynn Resorts, you know, a few Fridays ago we were looking for green shoots, and one of the things we mentioned was that, you know, Wynn Resorts actually traded pretty well on what was a pretty miserable tape. I think the stock was in the mid-40s. You look at it today, I think trading 78. And I'll make a comment that I made the other day. I mean, Wynn Resorts, and Tim Seymour says this all the time, the time to own these stocks when things start to get less bad and things are getting less bad. I think Citi just upgraded the stock. They lowered their price target from 140 to 107, but they did upgrade the stock to buy. And I think in earnings on April 29th, this is a stock that can rally another 10 to 15 percent on literally air. So I think there's room to the upside and win for sure. All right, Guy, thank you very much. All right, coming up, stocks ending the week with a real positive tone. We'll talk more about that as well as our exclusive look at what company insiders are buying the most of their own stocks. Who's placing the bullish bets on their own names? We'll bring you that data right after this. All right, welcome back. You're watching a bonus hour of live Fast Money on a day where the Dow finished up 704 points. It was an up week as well, about a 1.5% to 2% move for the Dow. The Nasdaq outperforming up 6% this week on optimism that, folks, we will start to reopen and get back to a somewhat semi-version of normal life at some point. All right, now for something that we have done the last couple of weeks for you here exclusively on Fast Money, tracking executives that bought the most of their own stocks in that week. In other words, who might be showing some bullish tendencies toward their own company? This is not buybacks. These are individuals buying their own stock, to make that clear. Here's the data from insiderscore.com. Your top insider buy this week is a name that we know. J.P. Morgan Chase is the stock, 
And former NBC Universal CEO Steve Burke, who's on the board of JP Morgan, bought $75,000 or 75,000 shares, totaling a couple of million dollars in JPM. So Steve Burke, very bullish on the company, the board that he sits on. Next up, Simply Good Foods, SMPL. That is your ticker. Check this out. According to Insider Score, seven different insiders totaling over $2 million of buying. Next up, Ryman Hospitality, another new name, ticker RHP. The CEO there bought nearly $600,000 worth. William Sonoma, next up, chairman, buying the stock there as well. So William Sonoma as well, and Winnebago seeing insider buying as well. So there's the five names that saw the most insider buying according to Insider Score. We'll also keep following the returns on these. Uh, by the way, this segment we've done, we're going to move it to another 5 o'clock hour, 5 a.m., because starting Monday, I will be back on Worldwide Exchange. Love kicking off the day with you. I'll see you on WEX Monday morning. Melissa is back on Monday as well. Our special is next. Have a great weekend. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.